Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Kristen. This is Molly. Molly, this is something that I don't really like to say, even though it's fact, but it just sounds so cheesy when you say it out loud. I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. Molly. Yes. It's swimsuit season. Oh, I know. And... I groaned automatically. It was just ingrained in me to start groaning. I know, because a lot of times it's swimsuit season is followed by some kind of thing telling women about how they need to shape up and get rid of all of their cellulite so they won't disgust people when they reveal their pale bodies to the world. Yeah, there's all sorts of body issues inherent in saying that Mm -hmm. it's swimsuit season. But we're not going to talk about body issues today. We're just going to focus on those pieces of cloth that stir up both men and women alike. Every summer. The bikini. The bikini. And I just want to give you a sneak peek of this podcast, where we're going with this. By the end of it, Kristen is going to point out that the bikini is the ultimate feminist icon. Whoa, I know. Is your mind blown? I didn't see that coming. I didn't either. I didn't know I was going to do that. I've got some work to do then in the next 20 minutes. All right, Molly, let's get started because the history of the bikini, as the title of this podcast implies, ain't so skimpy. Yes, more coverage than you would thought possible with the bikini. So many puns to be had in this episode. We need to go back in time, Molly. We need to go back B.C. I did not realize this, Molly, but the first recorded use of a form of bathing costume was in Greece in 350 B.C. And there's actually a 4th century mosaic wall in the Piazza Armarina, probably saying that, wish I could do an Italian accent, uh, in Sicily, depicting women wearing bikinis. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. But as ancient Rome falls and the Greeks and all the ancient civilizations die out, there comes the rise of prudishness and nice. shame regarding one's body. And no one went swimming. Yeah, they they would go bathing, you know, but not recreationally swimming like we think of swimming today. During the 18th century, they'd have spas where men and women would go, you know, to to the public bathhouses, maybe go take a steam. It was very therapeutic. It was medicinal. It Mm -hmm. was not like, let's go splash around in the water. So it may seem like we made a huge jump from like B.C. to the 18th century. But I mean, for a long time, swimming was, was frowned upon. Yeah. It just wasn't something, it it was not the quintessential summer activity as it is today. But by the mid-1800s, we have the rise of bathing as a recreational activity. And then in the early 1800s, with the rise of bathing, or swimming, we can now call it, I guess, uh, we have the emergence of swimwear. Because you can't just walk into the water with a full suit on and... And expect to have a good swim, can you, Molly? Well, that's what they expected the ladies to do. That's right. Because first, swimsuits for men were essentially just like ball gowns. I mean, not really, but it was a lot of cloth. And to avoid the uh, poofy ballooning of a skirt that could happen as you get in the water, they would weigh down. They put weights in the hems of the skirt to make sure that, you know, you weren't going to show any shin, you know, the shin is the most 
erotic part of the leg. Yes. So you must hide it at all times. And I don't know about you, Kristen, but swimming with weights on doesn't sound like much fun. No, it doesn't. It sound sounds like, like a recipe fun. for disaster. Yeah. And a uh, fun side side note to all of this, we actually have the railroad to thank for all the swimwear being invented because it was with the railroad that people could actually flock to the seasides to go to the beach, thus popularizing the beach activities, thus necessitating of the bathing suit. Now, in addition to wading down the, the, the swimming dress, uh, they just went to all sorts of lengths to make sure that women never had to be seen in a bathing costume. There was this one cool thing that Slate pointed out where it was like a, a dressing room on wheels. Mm-hmm. And you'd put the woman in the dressing room on wheels. She'd put on her bathing dress and they would wheel her in the little room, like down to the ocean so she could get in the ocean without anyone seeing her. And she could have a dip. And when she was ready to get out, they'd wheel the thing up. And pick her up and take her back so she could put her clothes on. And this was actually called a bathing machine. Yeah. And it's, you know, women just could not be seen on a beach. Yeah, it was a very, it was a very private thing, which makes sense. This was the Victorian era, the height of prudishness. Uh, but then we have some, some women who are really tired of being weighted down in the water. Cause first of all, it was probably dangerous and probably really hard to tread water. Well, as they pointed out, some women died. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in 1907, we have Australian swimmer and silent film star Annette Kellerman, who has had enough. Well, she needed to swim for, for therapeutic reasons because she had had polio and rickets. Mm-hmm. And so she started swimming to make her legs strong. And she was like, hey, by the way, it's really hard to make my legs strong when I can't move them with all these, like, pantaloons and weighted down skirts and the like that you're making me wear. So she shows up in America on a Boston beach and wears uh, what we would think of today as a pretty modest swimsuit. It was like a tank top that, you know, had no cutout. So she's not showing any chest. Mm-hmm. She's showing bare arms, but, you know, she's pretty much covered from neck to thigh, essentially. Yeah, and this is in 1907, and she is arrested for her swimsuit at a public beach, beach in Boston for indecent exposure. Can you imagine? No, I mean, if that's indecent exposure, just imagine if those 1907 policemen could travel through time to a 2010 beach. Yowza. If only they had our time-traveling capabilities that we have on this podcast. Yeah, technology these days. Now, Molly, we would be remiss in this discussion if we didn't mention Agnes Beckwith and Annette Kellerman, because they were two other women who really helped pave the way for allowing women to... Go swimming in public without having to worry about revealing their bodies, you know, and being arrested for indecent exposure and all this stuff. Um, and Beckwith, for instance, uh, raced in the water. She swam against other guys. She uh, raced four miles from London Bridge to Greenwich. And she did that while wearing the full skirted dress, petticoats, pantaloons and stockings, kind of demonstrating that even with all of that swimming costume on, she could still keep up with the guys. She was just as strong as one of the guys. And then we also have American Amelia Bloomer, who instituted uh, the bloomers. We are aware of the the clothing bloomers named after her that she started wearing to replace having to wear the full skirt Mm -hmm. when she swam. So now we're in the early 1900s, Kristen. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the contribution of someone like Beckwith is she shows that swimming is a sport. It needs a sports-like costume. 
And so, yes, those full bathing dresses gradually faded away. Eventually, those huge bloomer pants eventually faded away. And you could wear, respectably, a one-piece thing that covered, you know, for you from your your neck, basically, to your mid-thigh. Yeah, and, and a lot of that had to do with... Uh, Annette Kellerman's arrest, because that set off kind of a whole controversy of, well, should she have been arrested for that? Is yeah. that really indecent exposure? And so that opened the door for, you know, saying, no, that's ridiculous. Women are drowning in weighted down dresses. So that brings the rise of what is known as the Mayo. Yeah. And by 1915, this was what American women were commonly wearing. Now, let me just spell Mayo for you in case you want to like Google images of them because there are so many types of them. It's M-A-I-L-L-O-T. It's the French word for swaddling clothes because when I think of bathing suits, I think of swaddling clothes. <laughs> um, but you know, they were, they kind of varied in size and style. So you could wear one that really covered you up. You could wear one that was a little bit more risque and one piece is the, the term one piece has pretty much replaced Mayo, but essentially if you're wearing a one piece, it's a Mayo. Yes. Now into the 20s and 30s, we do have the emergence of the two piece. Not the bikini though, people. Two piece is a separate thing from the bikini because these two pieces covered up the navel. They would, they would come up and sit pretty high up on, on your natural waist. And, uh, then you would have a, a pretty, pretty cover, pretty solid covering for the top. To, uh, to make this, this two piece. And, uh, and <laughs> I love this. By the end of the 1920s, we had a lot of different novelty suits that were associated with two pieces. So you'd have like a sailor themed suit or maybe a, a leopard printed suit. Like they really went wild with this, with, with these new, this new swimwear. Provided you didn't see the navel. And that's what I think is so funny. I mean, everyone has a belly button. Mm-hmm. You know, but largely Hollywood influenced this because the Hollywood Hayes Code prohibited actresses from showing their navel. Yeah. And so, I mean, you think about all those starlets who are wearing those two pieces. They, you know, were they they seem so sexy, but they're not showing their belly button of all things. Mm-hmm. Now, I sh- should mention that uh, in the 30s, we do have the arrival of the Bauhaus. But the Bauhaus is probably not something that you have ever really seen on many beaches because the Bauhaus style was basically a pair of swim trunks with suspenders for the top. Very naughty. (laughs) It's Kristen's favorite bathing suit style. The Bauhaus style. Shall you be sporting it this summer? I shall not. (laughs) All right. You know what? It's the history of the bikini. We need to jump ahead to 1946. We just need to do it, Kristen. Smalley, in order to make the leap to bikini, we've got to leap across the Atlantic Ocean and go to France. Right, and in France, two men independently of each other came up with the idea for the bikini. We've got Jacques Haim and Louis Reard. I don't know how to give that a French, a French twist. Now, according to Kelly Ben Simone, and that name might ring a bell to any other fans of the Real Housewives of New York City. But uh, according to Kelly Ben Simone, who wrote the book, actually a good book called The Bikini Book that traces the history of the bikini. Um, she says that attractive women back then were known as bombshells. We know this. And anything intense was atomic. So the bombshell atomic lingo of the day. So the two Frenchmen, while they're deciding what to call their new skimpy swimwear, they decide to give them nuclear nicknames. So Jacques Haim called his swimsuit the Atom, 
A-T-O-M-E, like atom bomb. And then Louis Reard introduced on July 4th, 1946, Le Bikini. And that's because the United States had started atomic testing on the Bikini Atoll. Right. So essentially the Bikini is named after bomb testing. Yeah. So that's so weird. It is really odd. There is a connection between bikinis and bombs, bombs, atom bombs. But he 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 thought his invention was going to be as revolutionary as the bomb. Now, I think we should say, though, that when Reard wanted to introduce his bikini to the public, he couldn't get models to put it on. It was too risque. So instead, he had to hire stripper Micheline Bernardini. That's my terrible French accent. Uh, Micheline Bernardini uh, was a stripper who was enlisted to model it. And photos of her in this bikini just circulated throughout the world. And the bikini became a sensation. First of all, of course, it was totally scandalized in the U.S. And personally, I would have scandalized it, too, because no offense, Micheline, but it kind of looks like you're wearing a string diaper. Yes, Kristen was not a fan of the first bikini. It was not the most flattering thing. And uh, so, yeah, it was very scandalous. As, as Kristen said, no models would wear it. And in the U.S., one swimsuit designer said that this was only for French women because they were so short. Mm-hmm. I, it was just the only thing they could do to even make it look like they had any sort of body at all. But then uh, in the 50s, early 50s, we have the arrival of Bridget Bardot. And Bardot looks a fantastic in a bikini and she has very long legs. And, uh, so there goes that argument out the window and gradually they just become more and more popular. Well, there's the rise of the private pool. Yeah. So you don't have to go, you know, the swimsuit comes into vogue because we can all take the railroads and go to the beach. Now you can swim in your own backyard and no one needs to see that you are wearing something that's considered vulgar and only worn by crude, you know, European types. But even in 1957, and this is according to an article that we found in Slate, there was an issue of the magazine Modern Girl that said, it's hardly necessary to waste words over the so-called bikini since it's inconceivable that any girl with tact and decency would ever wear such a thing. So even though, you know, 1957, no girl would wear such a thing, by 1965, in Time magazine, everyone reports wearing them. So it's a very quick adoption. They go from being very vulgar to very accepted extremely quickly. Yeah, 1967, Time magazine features a survey claiming that 65% of young women had already gone over to bikinis. And part of that, again, was Hollywood's influence. Once those codes were relaxed and could, you know, gasp, show a navel on the movies. Think about, like, the James Bond movie where she comes out of the water in that gold bikini. I mean, there are very uh, strong images associated with bathing suits in the 1960s. Oh, yeah. Raquel Welsh, One Million Years B.C. Yeah, that's that's quite a a bikini bod. But with all this talk about bikinis, Molly... There's one thing that we haven't talked about yet, and that's Sports Illustrated. Now, as I said at the beginning, you could make the argument, as Kristen did, that the bikini is a pretty empowering piece of clothing because it allows you to be free and go swimming and you're not hindered by, you know, your bloomers or your bathing machine. I do think that body issues aside that you can tie into it, it is a pretty cool thing that finally women were allowed to just swim 
unencumbered. Yeah, because once again, as this often happens in my podcast research, the notion that I had going into learning about bikinis was different than the notion that I had coming out of it. Because when we think of bikinis today, I feel like it's so loaded with body issues and fulfilling the male gaze and things like Sports Illustrated and overemphasis on breast size all of this stuff without really appreciating this history and the struggle for women to literally cast off all of this extra clothing so that they could swim right alongside men and not be literally and metaphorically, Molly, weighted down yes. by the constraints of a heteronormative society. Yeah, you get to go to the beach and actually enjoy your vacation because you're not... Stuck in your bathing machine that's rolling you to the water. You can play on the sand. You can swim, as Kristen said, without being metaphorically weighed down. I was pretty impressed with like the history of the bikini. But then, as Kristen just said, we got to bring Sports Illustrated into it. The first, quote unquote, Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition came out in 1964. But it didn't have anything to do with a bunch of sports editors wanting to publish photos of scantily clad women. It really had to do with a lack of sports news to cover. So they were like, hey, we got some extra editorial space to fill. I've got an idea. Let's put in a picture of a woman in a bikini. Yeah, it was all about like going diving in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. You know, there was almost even, you know, a little bit of a story. They didn't even call it the swimsuit issue. You know, it was just like, hey, here's some... Here's some things you can wear the next time you're in the Caribbean. Being yeah, sporty. It didn't actually become a standalone product until 1997 when a very young, very buxom Tyra Banks in a very iconic photo uh, graced the cover of the very for- first actual standalone Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition. Now, I think the reason that people get so worked up about the swimsuit issue is that very quickly, they abandon traditional ideas of what a swimsuit is. Like 1978, Cheryl Teagues wears a see-through fishnet one-piece. So at that point, you're like, this is not really illustrating something I can wear while I'm being sporty on the beach. This is just you're trying to see through. And then in 1999, we have Heidi Klum standing there in a quote-unquote painted swimsuit, which is actually Klum just standing naked with some tie-dye paint all over her torso. So I think that that's part of why it's so controversial is like, you know, if you can separate all the body issues from the bikini and then just think, oh, this is something I wear while I'm on the beach. Like Gabriel Reese, the volleyball player, competes in a bikini. Mm-hmm. And so if you can take this thing that was like, hey, here's some, here's a healthy woman perfectly happy in the surf. Let's have her hold her boobs and paint a bikini on her. Then, yeah, the bikini comes like this objectification of women. Yeah, I was really surprised also when I was researching this subject because I And maybe it was just because I wasn't looking hard enough, but I did not come across any academic papers as I was expecting to really dissecting, you know, the feminism and the bikini and kind of this idea of, you know, women being objectified as sex objects when they put on this bikini. Like, what kind of messages are we sending out to people? Is it healthy for us to wear these things? All of, all of this stuff, you know, but then I came to the conclusion that maybe that's because it should be an empowering thing. And it's actually, I largely blame, uh, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition for attaching all of these body issues, uh, to bikinis because I feel like it wasn't until Sports Illustrated that you have this cultural idea of what a woman should look like in a bikini. 
not to say that, you know, Sports Illustrated is responsible for body issues that women have probably had throughout time. Um, but I do think that it probably had a lot to do with, um, feeling inadequate when you put one on, even if you're perfectly healthy and fit. Right. And I liked this quote, um, from Slate by Brian Curtis. Uh, he wrote, Sports Illustrated editors have always felt obliged to pretend that the swimsuit issue is a source of massive national controversy. This is best observed in their insistence two weeks after the annual issue on printing correspondence from outraged parents and besmirched librarians. So here you have this magazine that, you know, 51 weeks out of the year is just football, basketball, baseball, etc. And then one week out of the year, they're like, half-naked women, this is so crazy, we're getting banned in the supermarkets because people aren't don't know what to do. And I think that they, you know, themselves fed that sort of spectacle of, hey, this is this is crazy that we do this. Well, look, it, look how radical we are. And it also overly sexualizes the bikini. What started out as basically a uniform for a recreational activity, just like you put on jogging shorts when you're going to go for a run, it turns it into... Um, something totally eroticized. I mean, when Molly and I were talking about this earlier, kind of, um, coming to terms with, I guess, the message that it sends when you are walking down the beach in a bikini, kind of bearing all. Um, it's kind of hard because I don't think that you can ever remove the erotic from a naked woman's body. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that that's part of it, but I, I think it is unfortunate that the bikini has become such a source of angst for women, um, whereas it should be, I think, a source of empowerment. Yeah. Well, on that note, I mean, I can't say it any better myself. We want your thoughts on the bikini. Our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Is the bikini empowering? Is it the worst thing that ever happened? Are you excited about summer? Are you excited that vintage one-piece Mayos are coming back into style? I know. They are. You can find some really cute Mayos this season. Very flattering. Well, send us your thoughts. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or if you would like to share your thoughts with other listeners, you should head over to our Facebook page. It is facebook.com backslash stuff mom never told you. Or you can just search stuff mom never told you in your handy Facebook search bar, as you probably know. <laughs> And now we'll do a little bit of listener mail. We're going to summarize a little bit today and not read line by line, just because we got a lot of email on our Japanese condom sales podcast. Very mixed reactions. Um, so let's get into some of them. So first, let's start with a pretty, uh, pretty good correction. I think we got that we may not have defined all the terms related to manga and otaku culture as narrowly as we might have. And so we might have uh, painted all people who read manga as people who slept with body pillows. Right. And that is definitely not true. You can you can obviously make... There are tons of genres, and we might have just sort of grouped them all together for ease of our own podcast, which is never the way we should do things here. Yeah, and uh, speaking of the otaku moe and sleeping with body pillows, we were called out for jumping on a media trend that... Uh, paints an unfair portrait of a very small group of men in Japan and extrapolates that to the entire population. And that wasn't what Molly and I were trying to do. Admittedly, there were not that many articles that we found specifically about the moe associated with the the pillow thing, okay? Um, but there were a lot of articles going back to the mid-90s about this idea of Japanese men, um, some Japanese men, 
as herbivores versus carnivores, which we talked about. And if you want more info on that, of course, you can go back and listen to the podcast. But I would like to clarify that our research did go back more than uh, the episode of 30 Rock with James Franco in an article in the New York Times magazine. Right. You know, people thought it was just once one weird story we had gotten out of Japan and we weren't taking Japan culture as a whole. But as you said, they go back many years. Mm-hmm. Now, let's also point out that the title was a little bit tongue in cheek. Yes. Because we got many emails that tried to explain to us all the reasons why Japanese condom sales might be dropping. And these included things like the aging of the Japanese population, the Japanese attitude towards work. One woman wrote in and she had a Japanese boyfriend and he has to work you know, 60 hours a week. And mm-hmm. so she's like, of course, you know, you, you sleep when you get home after that kind of work week. You may not be having as much sex. Um, one person pointed out that the age at which Japanese youth lose their virginity is actually not that different than in the U.S. So obviously, you know, it's it's a complex issue. And the, and the point we were trying to make with the title was admittedly to get your attention, which it did, but it wasn't to try to. The answer to that question in the podcast was not... Uh, Japanese condom sales have dropped because people read manga. That wasn't the point at all. Yeah. So thanks to all of you, though, who wrote in, re- in response to it, whether you had criticisms or praise, Molly and I need to hear it all. Um, so again, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also follow us during the week on our Twitter. It is momstuffpodcast. Join us on there. And then you can... Finally, head over to our brand new blog. It's called Stuff Mom Never Told You. Surprise. And you can find that blog at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?